Hello, welcome back to another episode of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN in Press. We are mixing it up today, even though we're the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, we have the Irish on today, who I was fortunate to meet at least one of our guests at the uh, One Carbon Metabolism Conference in Asheville recently that FASTED puts on. Uh, but I saw some of the work presented that was just accepted for publication in AJCN titled Vitamin B6 and riboflavin, their metabolic interaction and relationship with MTHFR genotype in adults aged 18 to 102 years of age. Um, so I'm going to let our guests introduce themselves really quick. Hi, um, my name is Mary Ward. I'm, um, I'm a registered dietitian and professor of nutrition and dietetics at Ulster University. And um, as well as my teaching uh, role and responsibilities, I've had a long interest in one carbon metabolism. And um, you'll hear a little bit more about that today. And uh, I'll pass you now to my colleague, Helene. Hi, Kevin. Um, my name is Helene McNulty. I'm a director of the Nutrition Innovation Centre for Food and Health at Ulster University. Uh, working alongside Mary. And um, in that role, I look after nutrition research in the university um, and have done for the last number of years, about five years. Like Mary, I also have teaching roles alongside that. Um, but within the research role, um, whilst uh, I have to keep an eye on all aspects of nutrition research in my role as director, my own particular specialism is and has been all of my uh, research career in the area of folate and the related B vitamins and one carbon metabolism. So in that role, I'm involved in um, supervising PhD students um, and MSc students. And obviously, um, I'm uh, heading up international research in the area along with Mary, my colleague. Uh, so um Harry Jarrett, who's here with us today, is one of our star PhD students to have graduated recently, and he's the first author of the paper we're discussing tonight. Um, thanks, Helene. Hi, Kevin. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, as, as Helene mentioned, I'm Harry, Harry Jarrett, the, uh, the first author of the paper we're discussing. Uh, I actually currently am the COVID-19 Research Laboratory Coordinator at Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Trust in London, uh, but previously completed my PhD um, just over a year ago with Mary and Helene, um, yeah, pretty much focused on one carb metabolism. And yeah, this paper itself is actually stems from my sort of my own PhD project. It's one of my chapters of my own PhD supervised by, by Mary and Helene. So very excited to, to discuss the results today with you. Awesome. It's so great to have you all on. And uh, our listeners are fortunate to get to hear your lovely Irish accents for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> um, so this top topic, I think, is really cool. And uh you know, we, we've done a little bit on the podcast, we've done a little bit of one carbon, we've done a little bit of cohort studies, we've done a little bit of nutrigenetics, but not all under one umbrella. And uh, we definitely haven't talked about riboflavin or vitamin B6 all that much. So I guess to start us off, what was really the rationale for looking at this metabolic interaction between B2 and B6 and then throwing genotype in there? Well, Kevin, we, we at our center have been interested for many years in, in folate and the related B vitamins within one carbon metabolism. And uh, both Mary and I have specialized in this area. Uh, we worked for many years with the great and late John Scott, 
who who was a real leader in this field. And in fact, a lot of the discovery of the link between maternal folate and NTD is the work of the late Professor John Scott. So I actually had been his PhD student back many years ago in Trinity College, Dublin. So when I came to Ulster University first to set up a new folate group, I was very much advised and guided by John. And it became clear as we got into uh, research in this area that while folate and B12, particularly folate and perhaps to a lesser extent, B12 were getting all the attention. There were two other B vitamins in that pathway that received a lot less attention, uh, and they were um, vitamin B6 and riboflavin. And these two are are important in folate recycling. They're important, uh, just like B12 is important in folate recycling, they also play roles, but yet they don't get anything like the attention that folate and B12 get. And so we had always been interested in particularly riboflavin, because while uh, papers will acknowledge that B6 has a role, and if you even look at the literature that relates one carbon metabolism, for example, to cardiovascular disease, you will find mention of vitamin B6. But really, riboflavin is the fourth very much overlooked B vitamin uh, within one carbon metabolism and actually generally. So if you even look for riboflavin papers, not within the context of, of one carbon metabolism, because riboflavin has many roles um, in other pathways and in other metabolic reactions, you, you, you really, it, 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 there's very little attention. And so part of the reason perhaps why riboflavin is generally overlooked um, around the world as, as a nutrient that even matters to people's health is, is perhaps because we rely on dietary intake only. So we have reports of dietary intake data around the world. And yes, from those reports, perhaps the subgroup of women of reproductive age might be cons- of concern. Riboflavin intakes do sometimes look like they're lower than desirable, we'll say, compared to current reference values. But apart from that, people tend to overlook riboflavin as being important or being any kind of a concern in public health terms. And maybe it's because, and again, this would contrast with both folate and B12 and B6, maybe it's because biomarker status is rarely measured in any human studies, and particularly those you know, population-based cohorts that are so valuable to us, like NHANES in the United States, NDNS in the United Kingdom, and NANS in Ireland. So, so in those cohorts, um, NANS from Ireland, the, the population-based survey in Ireland, and NDNS in the United Kingdom do actually include a riboflavin biomarker. And it's for that reason that we've had access to hard collaborations with other countries, uh, both high and low middle income countries, we've had access to human samples on which we can assay riboflavin by the gold standard method that Harry is going to talk about a little bit later in this podcast. So really, we wanted to do the work on this paper as part of a long-standing interest that started more than 20 years ago. And the current paper builds particularly on one study 
over 20 years ago where we did a study in um, frail elderly. So they were older people that had low intake and status of a a number of of nutrients. Um, And we actually were interested in, because metabolically, um, vitamin B6, the plasma, the, the, the pyridoxal phosphate, the PLP form of B6, the, the coenzymically active form of B6 in tissues, in or, it, it needs a riboflavin-dependent step. So pyridoxal 5-phosphate, otherwise known as PLP, the form that's measured in plasma as a biomarker of B6, depends on riboflavin uh, for its generation in tissues. So other forms of B6 come in in the diet. They all need to be converted to pyridoxal 5-phosphate, PLP, and tissues uh, in order to sustain um, biochemical reactions needing B6. And so that is dependent on an enzyme, uh, the PPO enzyme, the oxidase enzyme, the pyridoxine phosphate oxidase enzyme, needs riboflavin in the form of FMN. And that's well established in the textbooks, but few studies in humans at any rate had actually focused on that important dependency, that metabolic dependency that that PLP has, the biochemically active form of B6 has on riboflavin. So over 20 years ago, we were interested in this metabolic interaction and we sampled and did a small intervention study with two different doses of riboflavin in older people. And we saw that in response to riboflavin at two doses, one which is a very near RDA dose of 1.6 milligram per day and a dose much higher, 25 milligram per day, we saw that after 16 weeks of intervention, the riboflavin biomarker respondent, as one would expect, uh, and that was uh, by measuring the gold standard method, erythrocyte glutathione reductase activation coefficient, it responded in terms of the EGRAC response. but also responded in terms of an increase in PLP. So that for us was the first sign that riboflavin was needed in order to generate PLP in tissues. And so really the downside of that study conducted many years ago was that it was in tiny numbers. We we, we only saw that PLP response in people that had low status of either B vitamin baseline. So really, the study that we're we've just published in AJCN has been, I suppose, crying out to be done for many years um, as a result of that early, small but important intervention study at our centre. So that was really the kind of background to why we embarked on the current study that that's described in in, in the current issue of AJCN. Awesome. Thank you so much for that background. I, uh, you know, I've, in the basic science world, we've seen NAD have this big explosion with, you know, it's excessive consumption disease and lower levels and linked to aging. And I always joke, you know, FAD needs to have this same revolution too, so people can care about riboflavin again, because everyone's hot on nicotinamide and nicotinamide riboside and things now. So 
hopefully one day, uh, you know, FAD will get a little bit of play and we'll put riboflavin back on the map. But your paper and, you know, the, the work that you've done at, with trials and everything using these uh, riboflavin status biomarkers, I think, has really helps to elevate it. Uh, your, your talk at the FASAB conference was definitely one of my favorites and extremely impressive and reminded me to um, pay more attention to riboflavin. So you guys used the um, NANS cohort, which I love that it's called NANS, the National Adult Nutrition Survey, and that's sort of our NHANES in here in America, and then the Trinity Ulster Department of Agriculture and Genovet cohort. So who wants to chat about these cohorts and just kind of give a feel for how generalizable they are and what some unique characteristics of them are present? The cohorts, I suppose, the, the ability to combine these cohorts, um, Kevin, was through our transnational um, project, DRIVE. Um, and that was actually um, a project um, that uh, involved uh, three international centers. So um, ourselves, um, colleagues at uh, University College Cork, Professor Albert Flynn and Dr. Jeanette Walton, and colleagues from UBC Canada, um, uh, Professor Yvonne Lammers and um, a number of her colleagues, in, in, including colleagues from the BC uh, Generation Project. So uh, we had a large um, transnational project funded called the DERIVE Project. And um, that project is funded each country's um, Research and National Institute of Research, in fact, funds their own country. Um, but the added value um, of the initiative is that they come together um, to, uh, I, I suppose, conduct research that no centre could conduct um, alone. And it's under a scheme called uh, the Joint Programmes Initiative. So it's a European scheme, Joint Programmes Initiative, Healthy Diet for Healthy Lives. Um, so this was a great opportunity for us to try. As Helene said, riboflavin has been largely ignored. And apart from ourselves at Ulster and perhaps a centre at Cambridge in the UK, um, people really weren't that interested in measuring riboflavin status. Um, so uh, this was a real opportunity for us to try and get some global recognition for the problem that is, you know, suboptimal riboflavin status. Uh, we had conducted some um, previous research that showed um, that apart from full-blown deficient riboflavin status, that having suboptimal status could impact really important health outcomes. Um, so at Ulster, we're, um, as Helene said, we have been interested in one carbon metabolism for many years. And uh, one particular enzyme that we love is uh, the uh, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. Um, and there's a common polymorphism in that enzyme that 12% of the population globally have, but um, in some countries it can be much higher. So for example, in Mexican Hispanic populations, one in three can have it. And um, if you carry this polymorphism, um, your uh, MTHFR requires riboflavin in the form of FAD for normal functioning. So um, your ability to bind to FAD is affected. And so that uh, leaves you with an, um, uh, an enzyme that works less, much less effectively than the normal variant. 
um, of the enzyme. And so we have studied that enzyme and have not only shown that it impacts one carbon metabolism if you carry the polymorphism, but that you also can have higher blood pressure. So we have looked at health outcomes in people with this polymorphism. And um, and I suppose we uh, then published really um, novel work um, that demonstrated by restoring riboflavin status in people with this polymorphism that you could actually impact blood pressure and health outcome. And so um, apart from, um, I suppose, uh, the biochemical consequences, we uh, believe that there are really important and have shown that there are really important health consequences of having poor riboflavin status. So, um, I mean, you know, and there, and there are other health outcomes. So that really got us, uh, I suppose, with the whole idea behind the Derive project. We wanted to look across different populations and see what the riboflavin status was. Because as Helene mentioned earlier, we're very much reliant on a global platform on dietary riboflavin intake. We, we're just lacking biomarker data. So through the uh, cohorts that we have described in this in the paper, uh, the Trinity Ulster Department of Agriculture cohort and the NAMS cohort, we really had access to very um, large um, uh, number of adults that we, we could combine. So it really allowed us to look across the whole uh, age cycle. And NANS is an, as you said, is a nationally representative cohort. So that really adds strength um, to the data. Um, and the, our core collaborators really um, head up um, NANS research in Ireland, in Ireland, along with colleagues from University College Dublin. So that was a great opportunity for us to link in with the, with, uh, the NANS uh, team. And the, the Tudor study has been a, um, a uh, long standing since I think 20, what are we now, Helene? 20, um, we're now probably 12 years into the Tudor study. And uh, that was a collaboration between Anne Malloy, uh, Professor John Scott, who Helene mentioned, and his colleague, um, long standing colleague, Anne Malloy, um, who everyone in the One Carbon world will uh, know and have heard of. Um, a collaboration between ourselves and Trinity, where we um, set up this really um, valuable cohort um, of um, over 5,000 Irish adults. And we collected, you know, uh, carefully collected biochemical data, health outcome data. So it's a very rich cohort. Um, and it really has allowed us to, I suppose, investigate um, these uh, micronutrient interactions between the one one carbon nutrients but also um, genetic interactions with these you know one carbon nutrients so we've been very fortunate and also within NANS um, because we were one of the partners in the NANS cohort NANS offers uh, very uniquely the fact that in a population-based study, we've got biomarker data for many of the micronutrients, including vitamin B6 and riboflavin. So if you look across the world, Kevin, you really will struggle to find um, a representative adult cohort, national cohort that have biomarker status of riboflavin and B6. 
Um, the Genovit study was a, a study that we conducted here. And in fact, um, that was uh, the, the first study that enabled us to show that if you intervened with riboflavin, that you could modify a health outcome as important as blood pressure in people with the poly the the C677T polymorphism and methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. So this unique opportunity to combine these three cohorts, who I might add, all had had their biomarker status analyzed at Ulster. So we measured uh, vitamin B6, and Harry will, can tell us about that, using HPLC, and we measured riboflavin status using a functional assay known as EREC. Um, and because we had measured all of those, that really added strength to our study. So it allowed us to combine this data confidently, knowing that status, you know, had been measured um, using identical, you know, in the one lab. And that, and that really added strength to the study. So it's a great opportunity. These are really well characterized cohorts that we were able to access and Harry will be able to fill us in a little bit more on uh, the methodologies and the strengths and weaknesses of those uh, and the outcomes. Thank you so much for that. And I will I will definitely plug in the show notes the trials you mentioned. I think we've had a previous episode on nutrigenetics uh, and uh, in a context of a clinical trial with Dylan McKay uh, up in Canada, and uh, yeah, that was more of a null result. But I, I do I've long used your um, MTHFR riboflavin supplementation and blood pressure outcomes as an example of how we should be doing nutrigenetics research and less post hoc analyses, more kind of repeating and seeing the same phenotype over and over again, measuring real clinical outcomes that are of importance. And, and, and Helene just presented on some of that data, and it continues to be quite impressive. So for all the precision nutrition-minded uh, folks out there, I would uh, hold up Mary and Helene's work and, and their past collaborators as a great example to look to. Um, yeah, and so Harry, you know, we're going to let you, since you were the first author of this, we're going to let you tackle all the nitty-gritty details. And Mary and Helene got the fun part of telling the background context, but can you walk us through, so I think folks, you know, this is a great background on the metabolic interdependencies and, and rationale for looking into this, but how did you actually go about measuring riboflavin status, measuring vitamin B6 status, how do you genotype people, what was, what was the, 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 uh, the bits in there? Exactly. Yeah. So I think as Mary and Helena alluded to, the three cohorts that we uh, we collected the uh, the data from was actually prior to my own PhD. Um, to put it to put it honestly, uh, so I wasn't on the ground collecting the data at that time point, unfortunately. And um, that data had already already been collected, and I was sort of doing the retrospective analysis and combining of the data. Um, I think as as Mary noted, it's so important. I think we made it clear in the paper that. Regardless of how standardized you have an assay, there's always can be interlaboratory variation. Uh, that's just a standard way of you know, people using perhaps maybe different incubation time for incubating the FAD um, with the glutathione reductase enzyme or um, using, using a different um, quantity of cofactor to, to stimulate the activity. So I think that's a really important thing to highlight with these three studies. First of all, is that all of the laboratory analyses was conducted centrally also, like Mary mentioned. So that was one thing that we, I think we make clear in the paper, and that's a real strong advantage of allowing us to combine, make a make a observational analysis on of, on over 5,600 adults aged 18 to 102 years. Uh, I think obviously the largest observational study um, reporting on this on this metabolic interaction for sure. Um, so I think that's that's really important just to, just to say from the outset. 
Uh, in regards to the actual uh, analyses, so I, one of my own PhD chapters was actually pretty much focused on the erythrocyte glutathione reductase activation coefficient, otherwise known as ERAC, which uh, we consider to be the gold standard riboflavin biomarker. Now, ERAC is a really good example of a functional assay. So it's not a direct measure of riboflavin or uh, it's in its cofactor forms, either flavonazidine dinucleotide or flavin mononucleotide. It's not a direct measure. It's actually a, yeah, a functional measure, uh, measure. So essentially what we do is the glutathione reductase enzyme itself, um, it catalyzes the reduction of oxidized glutathione to reduce glutathione, but it requires riboflavin in the form of flavonazidine dinucleotide FAD as a cofactor. So subsequently, if we measure glutathione reductase activity, this will reflect the enzyme saturation with FAD. Uh, and what we know is enzyme activity, glutathione reductase enzymatic activity can be stimulated in vitro if we incubate it for a certain period of time with the cofactor FAD. So this will give us the sort of the maximal, optimal uh, glutathione reductase enzymatic activity for that individual. So then we measure that enzymatic activity, and then we also measure the native enzymatic activity without any added FAD, uh, and we divide that, divide those together, um, which results in the ERAC ratio. So almost a bit counterintuitively, a lower ERAC ratio actually indicates better riboflavin status. Um, so for example, an ERAC ratio of 1.1 is indicative of a better ERAC status than somebody who has an ERAC ratio of, say, 1.4. Um, so that's essentially the, the ERAC assay. It is, as I think, as I think Mary uh, alluded to earlier, it is very laborious. I can tell you firsthand uh, how many hundreds and hundreds of samples uh, I have processed, physically processed, and then analyzed for ERAC. Even the pre-analytical processing phase of the, the ERAC protocol is awfully laborious. It's a, it's a thrice washing of the uh, erythrocytes um, and then obviously freezing. So that, that adds an extra, especially at the end of the day, end of recruitment day, you, you, you spin down the plasma serum, you aliquot the plasma serum, you think, oh, it's ready to go. And, oh, God, I've got to wash these erythrocytes three times. Now it adds an additional sort of 10, <laughs> 15 minutes uh, per spin. Yeah, so you add an extra 45 minutes at like 7, 8 o'clock in the evening when you're thinking, gosh, I could, I could have a beer. It's a Friday evening. Um, <laughs> so, uh, they, this is, that's exactly, I suppose, the Derive project and what Mary's mentioned as well. The Derive project, we're trying to develop those easily accessible plasma riboflavin biomarkers. So I suppose you can easily apply it to, to population-based surveys and researchers like me don't have to stay an additional 45 minutes or so to, to prep the samples. Um, but yeah, so that's the ERAC assay. Uh, vitamin B6 was quantified directly in, in the plasma um, as its metabolically active form, as Aline mentioned earlier, pyridoxal 5-phosphate PLP. I think that's obviously the being its most metabolically active form, it's, it's the most really routinely used biomarker plasma PLP to in, and indicative of uh, vitamin B6 status. And it's routinely implemented, I believe, in, in the NDNS, um, in NANS as well, and uh, also in NHANES, I believe there's PLP as well. Um, so it's, it's great so that we can compare across the across the uh, across different countries. And yeah, that's done by high performance liquid chromatography, uh, where essentially, um, yeah, uh, we use fluorescent detection to actually detect the uh, the quantity. But the method pretty much involved uh, the release of protein bound PLP um, within the within the plasma. And this was followed by conversion of the PLP to four periodoxic acid phosphate, subsequent separation by high performance liquid chromatography chromatography and then quantitation by fluorescence detection so i believe that that method was brought to ulster about 20 maybe 30 years ago by uh, christina pentieva from cambridge uh, who um yeah who showed us the technique along with uh, dr lean mckinnon as well showed us the the techniques on 
on running running those and running the HPLC machine and troubleshooting the HPLC machine, as well as the clinical uh, chemistry analyzer we use for ERAC as well. There was quite a few times in my PhD where uh, where we, we were just trying to troubleshoot the uh, the, uh, the the clinical chemistry yeah. analyzer we had. So. Those actually, Harry, just just to interject there, the authors you've mentioned are actually co-authors of the current paper, just to, to note that. So as you say, they've been involved in running both assays over the years, but uh, they're both co-authors of your paper. Yeah. No, and, I yeah think, and, I, and I think when Harry, he can guide us into the results, but really, um, I suppose what we were so lucky with Kevin was having access to this really large um Co, you know, combined cohort to allow us to look at these interactions because I suppose in the past, any um, any studies that may have um, alluded to this interaction, they were really much smaller. So and it and it's very difficult then to come to any firm conclusions. So the you know the great um, strength of this study really I suppose is in the size of the cohort and the fact that we have biomarker data available across the board, and that led Harry then to lead on the analysis which you know uh, um, revealed some really interesting data yeah i uh, look at this and i'm jealous as it was a phd project i mean i'm sorry you had to stay late spinning although i i understand that uh washed red blood cells for omega-3 fatty acid status is a similar uh, problem but I also did some work in, in choline and, and lauric acid, and you don't have any status biomarker there, and self-reported intake is a little questionable. So uh, it's it's extra work, but it's totally worth it. So you can really do these well-powered things. And so Harry, just back to kind of results and, and I guess methods more so. So how did you what what correlations were you looking at? What approach did you guys take? What factors did you adjust for? And to kind of tease out these metabolic interdependencies and and put genotype into the model as well. Yeah, no, so that's a really good question. So yeah, of course the cohort was made up of three uh, three cohorts we discussed earlier: five thousand six hundred and twelve adults aged eighteen to one hundred one hundred two years. So that really gave us the power to really split the cohort into older and younger adults because um, there's always the potential that older adults respond differently to younger adults uh, and vice versa. So we wanted to look at older and younger adults and also split by males and females as well and look at this metabolic interaction across different age groups and across the sexes as well. And that's what we did. So we split the cohort into four separate groups. We had males, uh, young, younger males, older males, younger females, older females, um, still with enough, because of the size of the cohort, we still had uh, a large sample size to conduct the analyses on. Uh, and we then, within those subgroups, we split them further into riboflavin status categories. So we had uh, individuals with optimal riboflavin status, individuals with suboptimal riboflavin status, and then individuals with deficient riboflavin status. And we looked across the different status categories and conducted NANCOVA um, to determine whether there's any significant difference in plasma PLP concentrations across those different um, riboflavin status categories uh, as measured by ERAC um, across the four separate um, subgroup analyses that we conducted. And I can really, really lovely data, actually, the bar charts um, we have uh, are really nice. So you can see there's a stepwise reduction in plasma PLP concentrations when you go from optimal to suboptimal to deficient. And that's regardless of age and regardless of sex. Across all the age and sex sub-analyses we conducted, there's a significant difference in plasma PLP concentrations across those ERAC status categories. So I think this really does nice, nicely highlight um, 
Obviously, it's only observational data, so thus we cannot confer causality. But it does nicely highlight there is really a strong indication that plasma PLP concentrations, regardless of the life stage of that individual or their sex, is really dependent, potentially dependent upon riboflavin status. And as Helene alluded to earlier, obviously that may indicate that given that vitamin B6 is ubiquitous across the, the food groups, riboflavin may actually be the limiting factor um, that could be important to take into consideration when we're thinking about vitamin B6 um, dietary requirements and how to optimize uh, vitamin B6 in its metabolically active form of PLP um, across the life cycle, which is again important because a number of studies such as uh, Marion Helene's previous PhD students, um, some work by Catherine Hughes as well from Ulster has looked at the impact of PLP on um, cognitive impairment, um, cognition, a rate of cognitive decline and the risk of anxiety and depression as well. So I think uh, it's it's really important. And I think, yeah, we know that there's certain factors that influence PLP and it's well documented in the literature, such as the age-related decline. Um, but this study really does give strong evidence that vitamin B6 status, as measured by its metabolically active form of PLP, is heavily dependent on riboflavin status. And maybe, Harry, you might want to just also talk about um, the interaction with the MTHFR genotype, which I think is another really interesting finding of the paper. Yeah, no, definitely. So obviously we know that the MTHFR genotype has been linked to a, a, a number of, of different health outcomes, um, particularly increased risk of stroke um, and some some risk of vascular dementia potentially as well. Um, so it's a really important uh, genotype to really focus on and try and work out the mechanisms by which this this occurs. And obviously, as Marilena mentioned, really one of the, the strongest candidate arguably is the uh, the relationship with blood pressure. And those individuals with the TT genotype obviously have an increased elevated um, uh, elevated uh, blood pressure, increased risk of hypertension. But um, there is a potentially uh, mecha mechanistically when you consider the relationship between FAD and MTHFR genotype um, and that cells have a tendency to spare FAD at the expense of FMN, FNM pathways may be compromised in those individuals with the MTHFR677C to T polymorphism. So that led us to think because of that pyridoxine phosphate oxidase, that PPO enzyme that is responsible for converting vitamin B6 into the pyridoxal 5-phosphate PLP, that made us think, well, potentially, if we think FMN-dependent pathways could be compromised in these individuals as a genotype, would that mean there's a reduction in PPO enzymatic activity, which would subsequently lead to a reduction in PLP concentrations, perhaps maybe exasperated um, compared to individuals with a CC genotype? And that's exactly sort of what, what, what we've seen in, in, in the paper. Uh, worst case scenario in regards to PLP status, when we looked at MTHFR genotype in regards to combining non-TT genotypes, so the CC and CT genotype, along with the TT genotype, worst case scenario was indeed those individuals with deficient riboflavin status combined with the TT genotype, they had the significantly lower plasma PLP concentrations when you compare them to those individuals with the CC, CC and CT genotypes. Yeah, that's super interesting to think about. I think it spurs a lot of follow-up investigations on sort of when there is, you know, some more sort of metabolic stress or nutrient restriction stress, how are cells adapting to that and which pathways do they conserve and which pathways do they sacrifice? There's been a lot of this in the folate world, but it's really cool to see some epidemiology to corroborate what we think is happening in cells in the FAD world. And hopefully this podcast helps put FAD kind of more on the map and more in people's minds. Uh, it's probably, been a, probably some people going back to textbook, pausing this and going back to textbooks and being like, okay, FMN, FAD, what are the cofactors for? Yeah, these are really awesome results. Um, 
Diving in a little bit too, I saw some interesting things in the table that I thought were just like worth pointing out. And so, you know, supplement use and dietary intake are unsurprisingly associated with the plasma PLP and also the EGRAX, both of the biomarkers. Um, but then I thought it was interesting. So one of the things with PLP that's always, I guess, a problem in interpreting the epi is that inflammatory factors are often associated with lower PLP. And so you get this essential issue of, is it the low B6 status? Is it true low B6, like functional status? Or is it just the PLP looking low because of an inflamed state? But I thought it was interesting that EGRAC seems to have like no relationship to the HSCRP at least. Um, so that kind of adds some more promise to it, I think, as a functional biomarker that it's not being compromised. Like oh, so many of our nutrient status biomarkers, people are like, you know, oh, this will replace dietary intake so much better and no recall error. But then they metabolically are impacted by so many other factors to the point that I would argue they're just as compromised, if not more. But EGRAC seems quite robust. And um, so I was just curious if you guys had any thoughts or reflections on that. I quite can say that one. I think from from my point of view, I think ERAC is obviously because of it's a long term biomarker. It it measures long term riboflavin status simply by the realms of it's measured in um, erythrocytes, the human tissue. It's measured. It's not measured in plasma or serum, which is rather transient. The ERAC assay uses washed red cells, um, so it's really a long term marker. Obviously, the the rate of turnover for erythrocytes is about three months, so it gives you a really holistic overview of uh, one's riboflavin status, as opposed to if you're using a plasma or serum biomarker. Sometimes, as you say, acute phases of, or inflammation can impact those those biomarkers. Whereas ERAC is 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 more stable because it's that long term marker of of um, the storage compartment of, of riboflavin in the form of FAD. Further highlights the need for development of functional status biomarkers across the field of nutrition because we are sorely lacking in them. And you know, I know it's tons of work to measure them, but uh, they are they're really important. Yeah, and I guess for, for Mary, do you want to reflect on anything about kind of organizing a large international cohort here and uh, any any fun things? You mentioned some off the air that I think would be interesting to listeners. Well, um, first of all, it was really terrific to have the opportunity um, under this uh, JPI scheme uh, to work with our colleagues in Cork and with our colleagues um, at UBC um, on the DRIVE project. So, um, and it was a really terrific collaboration um, and I think a really fruitful collaboration. The publications are just starting to emerge, but I think we're going to generate some really nice data. So um, as part of the project, we have, um, Harry has spent a lot of time um, analyzing the riboflavin status of the UBC cohort. So um, we, that is uh, data that, you know, we haven't shared yet. Um, but that will be probably the first population data from Canada um, that will emerge. And um, uh, Yvonne Lammers and her lab then has uh, was working on the development of uh, plasma um, biomarkers of, uh, for um, riboflavin. And then we were able to compare those against the gold standard ERAC. So we have some really um, nice data emerging and um, it was great. Um, Yvonne managed to come over here and we had a, a really fun derive workshop at um, the FENS conference, which is our uh, four yearly European nutrition congress. And we were able to host a derived symposium and share the work and try and, I suppose, disseminate the findings from Iraq. But 
Um, in relation to the project, we certainly had lots of um, eventful um, happenings throughout. We had a great, Yvonne had a really great postdoc, uh, Nadia Morin, working in the lab, who Harry interacted with. Um, and uh, we were exchanging samples. So I suppose we're very used to conducting studies and we're very used to sending samples all around the world. But we had a really stressful uh Part, the part that you doesn't get into the paper of sharing um, samples where we sent all our samples from our, our cohort studies across to Yvonne's lab. And um, worst of worst, they got ended up getting lost um, in, trans, in transfer. So we're we are not easily, um, I suppose we're not, uh, we, we won't give up easily. And although FedEx told us the case was closed and the samples were gone, we just persisted and persisted. And eventually they turned up in plastic bags in a, in a box in Atlanta, <laughs> in Atlanta, in an airport in Atlanta. But <laughs> that led to a few opportunities, I think, Kevin. You know, so we then, um, we were able to then run some Interesting studies on um, stability and storage of uh, of um, uh, washed plasma uh, for uh, the measurement um, of uh, the direct markers um, at Yvonne's lab, and it led to actually some really um, interesting uh, data that will that will come out, you know, um, in one of Harry's next papers. Um, but so I suppose these things are extremely stressful at the time, but it actually led us then to try and work out, OK, these samples have been sitting around for eight weeks. Um, are they absolutely useless or can we salvage anything? And I suppose it sends you into the lab and, and let us, you know, really conduct some stability studies and set up some novel experiments to try and work out. Um, how, you know what Iraq activity was like. What the you know the plasma levels were showing. Um, so you know that that was good fun, wasn't it, Harry? In the end, it was good fun, but in the beginning, it was very stressful. <laughs> it was a very stressful time, and it's it's it was heartbreaking. So every night, you you like there's no no word from FedEx, no word from any where have they gone? They can't just disappear. Um, but yeah, like Mary said, it actually opened up another avenue of our own research, which which I think will be really sort of important for people down the line later down the line as well if they want to implement these new biomarkers that derive is developing along with the, with us at Ulster and Yvonne Lammers and UCC these biomarkers we're developing um I think you know it will really help the, their use if we can say the plasma is stable for this amount of time then that's really going to facilitate the use in long-term uh long-term uh, analysis and large you know co cohort studies where you don't perhaps maybe have the time to 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 store and and freeze for for long periods of time and things like that so i think yeah, it might actually help the uh the, the aim of the derived project developing easily accessible but maybe also highly stable biomarkers as well <laughs> i suppose that, that's what we're interested in kevin you know before the derived project what we really want to do is try and find out um you know try and access more global data on riboflavin status um you can see across different populations there was a really uh nice paper that emerged from China um, in 2020 from Liu and colleagues, but um, that reported some very interesting observations between dietary intake of riboflavin and um, onset of hypertension. Um, unfortunately, they didn't have any any biomarker data, but that paper was really interesting because the, the 
the uh, riboflavin intakes that they reported were really low. So they would be, we would never see them in the develop in, um, in the US or um, in Europe, um, you know, in the kind of, in the regular pop, um, in the regular populations, but in that part of Northern China, because the main source of riboflavin actually comes from dairy. Dairy intakes are really low. And so you were able to identify a proportion of the population who had a very low prevailing um, riboflavin intake. But it would be really nice to have biomarker data across such populations, you know, to show poor status. Because, you know, as we've said in the paper and as we, we've said in the podcast, you don't have, you know, you don't have to have full-blown riboflavin deficiency to have health consequences. We have, you know, shown through a number of studies that suboptimal status can have, um, can have um, health kind of major implications in terms of health outcomes, particularly when you interacted with the TT genotype. So, what really the derived project was all about was trying to. I suppose, develop more accessible biomarkers so that in population studies that have biobank samples, we could measure plasma riboflavin and we could then, um, I suppose, be better informed globally about what, you know, what the story is with riboflavin. And I think um, that's important both for riboflavin status, but through this paper, we're also showing that, you know, setting dietary reference values you know, we don't eat nutrients in isolation. We've got to maybe consider other nutrients. We've got to consider the metabolic interactions. And this paper is a really good example of how you maybe can't optimize your B6 status fully if you don't consider riboflavin. But if we can't measure riboflavin status, how are we going to do that? So um, I think that's really, you know, in terms of we were we were just trying to highlight through this paper. And I think for populations going forward, we know that um, when you're setting the dietary reference values, not only now can we take, um, you know, the metabolic and clinical consequences, but we now also can consider health outcomes. And we, you know, with the whole, I suppose, explosion in terms of the genome, you know, we know that genetic factors may also influence metabolism and, you know, maybe we can take those into account. So setting dietary reference values has become more complicated because the more we learn, then the more we've got to consider. So I think through in this paper, we've highlighted that, but also through the derived project, you know, what we really are interested in looking is the nutrient-nutrient interactions, but also the gene-nutrient interactions and the consequences of those. Um, and certainly, uh, we've probably identified more questions than answers, which is good going forward. Well, I think the biomarker work you're doing is going to be critical for incorporating into some larger cohort studies. And it's great, you know, this is relatively stable. So you can start to look at the relationship with hard endpoints and considering all these interactions. And uh, that, that sort of goes well into the panel that uh, Helene and I were on at the FASIB1 Carbon Metabolism Conference of how do you set you know, the chronic disease risk reduction DRI values, the, the new value um, that the Institute of Medicine or the National Academies of Medicine instituted, uh, how do you set those values in the age of knowing all these nutrient-nutrient interactions and nutrient-gene interactions? Um, and Helene, I don't know if you have anything to reflect on there, but I think you guys' work really uh, tees it up nicely for the challenge for everybody in, in precision nutrition and, and getting really meaningful CDRR values. 
Kevin, I agree with you that session at the recent FASEP conference in One Carbon Metabolism was terrific. A, a specific session dedicated, a workshop actually dedicated um, to DRVs and emerging evidence, emerging DRV, the approaches um, to, to setting DRVs. And as you've both commented, I suppose the complications that face us. Nonetheless, I think everybody at the workshop agreed who presented and participated that in the end, it was all going to be based on the highest quality evidence. So studies like the one we've been talking about today will help feed into emerging RDAs. And I suppose as both Mary and Harry commented, a good paper and indeed the workshop itself that we've been talking about, they normally, you know, they answer some questions, but they consider the research in the future. And I think one of the areas that uh, would be key for us now, you know, as a next step arising from this paper is to um, build upon these data. These are observational data, as Harry said. We'll need to follow up with some carefully controlled RCTs. We heard at the workshop that the DRV committee are going to be looking for the highest quality evidence, and it turns out that that's randomised controlled trials, but not just any randomised controlled trials, randomised controlled trials that are carried out in the right target groups and at the right doses. And that's one of the big challenges because the DRV committee explained that um, dietary reference values that are emerging will, will rely on, on, on high quality evidence. At the top of the pyramid of evidence is randomized controlled trials, but many of those have been done at super duper pharmacological levels that are way off the scale in terms of decisions. So I think one of the things that, you know, future are randomized controlled trials that now need to emerge arising from Harry's paper will really need to be uh, designed appropriately. And really, if they're going to be informative in any way for emerging DRVs, they're going to need to be at dietary levels, not randomized control trials that typically can often be a hundredfold higher than normal dietary exposures. So the results of them, even if they show an interesting health outcome, um, are going to be you know, irrelevant in terms of, of, of helping us to make those crucial de decisions about emerging DRIs. And um, the other thing to have come out of the workshop that again dovetails quite well with the paper um, the workshop at FASAB on DRIs is that, you know, in future, we're going to be paying much more attention to the health outcomes, um, it, you know, with the emergence of, of that as a new consideration for setting, setting those values, the DRI values. And I think, again, the paper, by showing the important metabolic dependency between these two nutrients, and perhaps suggesting that, that, that riboflavin may be the more limiting of the two, also suggesting that it's particularly relevant, this metabolic interaction for older adults and in individuals with the variant MTHFR677 TT genotype. But when one goes beyond the metabolic relationships shown in this paper, um, you know, the direct effect of low status of riboflavin on PLP levels, and one considers the, the wider uh, health impacts, we've that really important interaction of riboflavin with the MTHFR C677 T polymorphism uh, in terms of influencing blood pressure. And I guess 
a final word on on the link between the paper and indeed the the the, the, the DRI workshop at FASAB is that um, maybe the life cycle stage that's the most important of all uh, in terms of taking forward the work from the Jarrett paper is actually beginning to look at early life. How about hypertension risk in pregnancy and the adverse outcomes of pregnancy that, that can lead to? How about women with the variant TT genotype and their higher risk that they're not even aware of, nor is their treating physician aware of? But the pre-pregnancy state and also when they become pregnant, uh, their blood pressure values and their risk of hypertension may be all the higher. Um, so that, 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 as Mary mentioned, nutrient, nutrient interactions, gene nutrient interactions, and the implications for it all in terms of DRIs, um, and, um, you know, it's up to us as the scientific community to make sure at the time of designing new studies arising from the Jarrett paper and generally, we need to look to see how will those results be used for emerging DRIs? How can they be used in a practical way to advance uh, the policy decisions in our field of nutrition? And I, I think, you know, in that respect, the Jarrett paper dovetails very well with uh, some of the discussions we, we we both participated in, Kevin, at, at, at the recent FASAB meeting, that special workshop, which was a terrific addition. Normally, you don't get a workshop dealing with nutritional issues in the middle of the FASAB meeting. It's more focused on people with, you know, molecular biology and biochemistry interests in, in the one carbon cycle, but actually it was a lovely addition and it was Amanda McFarland, uh, who's, who's got a major role, of course, in AJCN. That was the brainchild of Amanda to think about having that DRI committee um, or that DRI workshop at, at the recent FASA conference. And it was terrific. And I think even the delegates who are more interested in the biochemistry and the molecular biology, I think they were all very interested in being enlightened to hear about how DRIs are devised and how the high quality science that goes into making decisions about those values. So, so uh, you know, it was lovely uh, to have the paper being accepted the very week that actually we got, <laughs> we were very excited to go to the FASEP conference, having had the Jarrett et al. paper just accepted that very week. So it, it was great. And then we felt comfortable talking about the results uh, at the conference because we just had the paper accepted. So it, it was good timing and it meant that the results were, were part of the discussion at, at, at the conference on, on that workshop on DRIs. Wonderful. I think uh, now we just need to secure funding so that we can do all this work and <laughs> do these high-quality RCT, high RCTs, uh, which will be probably the hardest part of all of this. But I think that's a wonderful note to kind of end on. And uh, I thank you guys so much for publishing an AJCN and coming onto the podcast to uh, talk about it. And, and Mary and Helene, you are both dietitian scientist legends. Um, and I will uh, make continue to promote your, your work because I think it's really uh, how the field needs to advance forward. So thank you so much for coming on. And thank you, Harry, for uh, being the first author on this publication and coming as well. And wish you best in your, your new position. Thanks, Thanks very much. So much. Thanks, Kevin. Kevin.